I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week. First up, The Athletic's Lindsay Jones. She's a national NFL writer for The Athletic, president of Pro Football Writers of America. She's followed by Lee Diffie, who serves as NBC Sports' lead play-by-play commentator for its uh, IndyCar coverage. She'll be calling the Indy 500 this Sunday. Does WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, Moto GP. Supercross and also is NBC's Olympic primary announcer for track and field at the Summer Games. Um, two excellent conversations. Lindsay and I discuss Colin Kaepernick working out for the Raiders and what that would mean regarding media coverage. Sort of whether the argument that Kaepernick would be a distraction, um, you know, has any merit at least a sort of a in terms of sort of a media perspective. How the NFL sees this realistically what kind of quarterback he might be and then we talk about access this year for the nfl in a post-covid environment lee diffie uh discusses calling the indianapolis 500 rising viewership of motorsport motorsports in this country obviously everybody knows uh f1 has been blowing up but the uh, indycar's gotten great ratings nascar's had a pretty good start to its season as well we also talk about uh lee voicing the incredible tokyo olympics 400 meter hurdles final which uh, which had Karsten Warholm defeating Rye Benjamin, maybe the greatest track and field race of all time. Then we get a little bit into um, just having a voice that's not born in America and and how that's been for him as a as a broadcaster. So the guests are Lindsey Jones to start and Lee Diffie to finish. If you um, if you want to head to the interviews right now, please do. But uh, I did want to add something before we get to our conversations. And I'm just going to stream a consciousness. Obviously, it has been a horrible week in America, uh, another horrible week in America when it comes to the death and massacre of people. And, you know, for a long time, I've, I've been thinking about how to either express this or to write this, and I'm still not there. I've spent the last four years, as I think people know listening to this podcast, watching America from afar. And... You know, the exploration of being deeply connected to a country yet physically not in that space is something I hope to write about one day, but I, I haven't sort of figured out sort of how I want to say it or at least offer words to contribute something other than noise or, or something not useful. But in many ways, it's more painful to watch what's happening uh, from across the border. And I now live in Toronto, obviously, but I, of course, am a proud American citizen because I feel guilty for not being in the fight down there. But at the same time, I'm thankful my kids who are younger than the, than the, than the, than the babies who were just, who were, who were killed in Texas, um, went to school today. And I didn't necessarily have to worry that they would be immersed in this kind of horror. And I feel fairly confident that they're going to be safe. Uh, the front page of the Toronto star today, when I'm taping this on Thursday, May 26th, headline was America's Tragedy, 
And then they listed all the active shooter events at school at school since Sandy Hook on December 14th, 2012. And you look at that cover, man, and you just, you think to yourself, what the fuck? What the fuck are we doing here? How can we not at least take some steps to solve this problem? You may not like Steve Kerr. There are obviously things about the NBA when it comes to China's relationship that are absolute hypocrisy and a joke. But like many, I think, Americans, like many people around the world, like when I saw him offer what he said prior to the Warriors-Mavericks game, like I felt that too. I felt that in my soul. Like, what are we doing? What are we doing? And unfortunately, the answer continues to be nothing. Nothing other than infighting. Nothing other than not passing bills. Nothing other than being, in many ways, owned by lobbyists. And not respecting the people's will. Anyway, I don't have the answers, but it's pretty much nothing. There's pretty much nothing I've been thinking about more than what's going on in America right now. There's no great segue to do this, but coming up, Lindsey Jones and Lee Diffie on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, I introduced Lindsey Jones at the top, of course, but let's uh, let's give a quick uh, her quick CV here as well. She's a national NFL writer for The Athletic, president of the Pro Football Writers of America, although she will tell you that does include Canadians, perhaps even some others from North America. One of the um, prominent voices when it comes to the NFL in the U.S., and uh, she's been on this podcast before. I have immense respect for her, and she was great to come on on pretty short notice. So, Lindsay, one, thank you, and two, welcome back to the Sports Media Podcast. Sure. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, it's this time in the offseason where, um, you know, our schedules are a little bit more flexible, so uh, happy to hop on. Yeah, better me calling you today than Sunday, you know, 2 p.m. Eastern time or something like that. You're probably busy. So here's where I want to start. And, um, you know, obviously you can do hours and hours on Colin Kaepernick and and the many sort of facets of his story, his journey. But this is specifically one I want to focus on on this. He last played pro football, obviously, in 2016, worked out for the Las Vegas Raiders this week. I have no idea, by the way, how that went. But for the purposes of this podcast, what I'm interested in is, can you give me a broad sense of how you think media-wise, at this point in 2022, you know, we're not talking 2018 anymore, 2017, 2022, how do you think the story of Kaepernick will be covered if he indeed, let's say, gets to camp with the Raiders and has a legit chance of making that team? Yeah, I mean, I think the our understanding of Colin Kaepernick and everything that he has stood for why he protested in the first place. Um, I think it's just changed a lot. And, you know, as, as time has gone on, I think it's been, you know, at least in like serious football media circles, the idea that you could try to make an actual football argument for why he has not played since 2016. I think all of that has really kind of gone away. I don't think you can make a serious case for, oh, he wasn't good enough at football or, you know, his his accuracy percentage was too low or, you know, c- kind of those those really ridiculous football arguments that people tried to make as they tied themselves, you know, they went they went through all this gymnastics, right, to to rationalize why Colin Kaepernick was not playing football. 
I think it's really obvious now. And it's going to be really clear if you are a broadcaster or a columnist or a beat writer, whoever it is, and you're trying to kind of make those arguments. I think it'll be pretty clear of kind of where you where you stand or where you come down on all of this. Um, you know, I think one other thing that has changed is that, you know, for a couple of years, we never heard Colin speaking for himself. And I think that was a very deliberate decision on his part, um, you know, that he he didn't want to be out doing a lot of interviews and kind of stumping for himself about why he should have a job playing football. Um, in some cases, that was to his detriment, right? Because a lot of people then decided to speak for him and make assumptions about what he wanted, salary demands, that he was demanding a starting job, all these sorts of things that we never actually heard him say. So I think there was a lot of assumptions that were made. But now we've, you know, we've seen him kind of reclaim his own narrative. So we've seen him, you know, he's he's had more media appearances, not a lot, but he has done some interviews, you know, he obviously has kind of a, his own media presence now in terms of like documentaries and um, that sort of stuff where he's able to, you know, explain a little bit better for himself, I think where he's at and what he's doing. Um, I still think it's going to be it's it's probably going to be clumsy. I think there's going to be people who are going to mess it up. Um, you know, if he does end up signing, you know, you're already seeing if you're looking on reading around Twitter, uh, over the last day or so since this workout happened, you know, a lot of people dredging up the same, like he was a terrible player and he couldn't play. And at this point though, I think that's just really telling on yourself. If that's, if that's the only thing that you can say when it comes to Colin Kaepernick. So, I mean, (laughs) the argument that he couldn't be a backup in the NFL is just, I mean, you're, you're intentionally being bad faith there. If you want to have the argument, like he shouldn't be a starting quarterback, I guess I can sort of have that discussion with you, although, you know, I'd want to go back at the time and see who the starters were in 2017, 2018. But there's honestly no merit to like he he wouldn't play in the NFL because of ability, because that's just not true. He he easily would have been a backup. You can't even argue otherwise where the argument back in the day, Lindsay, used to be pushed. And this is where I want to this is one of the reasons I wanted you to come on to discuss it is for such a long time. What we heard was Colin Kaepernick would be a significant distraction to an organization you would have and again i'm sort of going to paraphrase here you would have all sorts of non-sports related media coming to cover his every move you'd have activists uh outside the stadium either who support colin kaepernick or are against colin kaepernick and the whole notion was that organizations quote unquote did not want to bring this distraction in i always find the nfl in many times with the word distraction to be totally full of shit as you know we just saw the browns have brought in deshaun watson like they'll bring you know what you could be a distraction if you're tom brady you know what i'm saying like if you can win games like that argument never sort of cuts weight but that was for a long time one of the things that felt like that league officials not nfl officials i should say team officials or ownership put out there to say this is why we're not looking at him where do you see where do you see that today in 2022 um in terms of even the could anybody even make that basis of a, of a statement to say he'd be a distraction because in a 2022 construct that seems even more absurd to me yeah i mean look he will be a story when he signs somewhere and i'm actually saying when and not if which is kind of crazy that we're, we're saying that yeah. at this point um and i don't i don't necessarily say think i'm not sure that it's going to happen but I was pretty sure for a long time that it was not going to happen, that it just nobody was going to be the first one to work him out, to bring him in, to even give him a shot. But now that door has opened a little bit. So so we'll see. He's also no 34. Um, yeah. 
he was robbed of the prime years really of his career because of all of this. Um, but like, it will be a story. It was a story when he worked out. It wasn't a huge story. It was not the biggest story. I think in the NFL, even of that day, it might not have even been the biggest Raiders story that happened that day. I mean, we also had John Gruden's lawsuit um, proceeding a judge ruling in his favor. And now the NFL, I think is really not happy about that because they're going to have to go through the discovery process and, the NFL absolutely does not want its dirty laundry um, out there. But look, it, it is a story. It's going to be a story. But like, it's not going to be the media circus that it would have been in 2017 or 2018, I don't think. Um, and I think when we were when we when we have to look back through what everybody was afraid of, and that whole always oh, going to be a distraction, we have to remember how scared and I think scared is a fine word to use here. Um, teams in the league were of like the Donald Trump machine in the 2017, 2018, 2019. They did not want to be the target of Trump's tirades and the MAGA following that comes from that. Um, even though I think business-wise, it wouldn't have been a terrible decision. I mean, I think there's pretty strong evidence that Colin Kaepernick would be good for business. I mean, Nike saw it. I mean, Nike wasn't going to put their money behind somebody who wasn't going to make them money. I don't, you know, I don't think this was like an altruistic thing that Nike was like, great, let's put Colin Kaepernick and all these commercials out of the goodness of our hearts. No, they knew that they were going to make money off of this, right? Yep. Um, oh, yeah. So I think, you know, I think it was a lot of cowardice and a lot of teams being scared. I mean, because you're 100% right that teams will handle, they'll, they'll bring on all sorts of distractions. They'll welcome it into their building. You know, I guess the, the one piece of that is like, oh, you're welcome. You can't have any distractions out of your backup quarterback. But I think that also was <laughs> yeah. kind of short sighted and like not really looking at what happened actually like with the Niners, even when he was still playing there. He was not a distraction in the locker room. Sure, there was like some external media stories and stuff going on. But he was really well liked in that locker room. He was really well respected. I believe he even won their kind of like their their version of the man of the year award within the Niners team. So this is not something that was like divisive in the locker room. You know, Niners players weren't resentful of the cameras that were coming or, you know, Colin Kaepernick getting on the news and those sorts of things. Um, so I always just felt like that was a, like a really, really flimsy argument. And well, it's just because like, there's so much, I mean, the reality is like the NFL on a daily basis is a distraction. Like, yeah. I mean, this is just, it's the distraction business. It's a yeah. very, very famous league with a lot of very, very famous people. And again, I, I'm not going to, like, I'm not going to sit here and say that he wouldn't be a story. That's absurd. And I'm not going to sit here and say that, yeah, like, it's going to be a pain in the ass for the PR department at times, and it, it'll be a pain in the ass for ownership. But, like, man, just look at your history of that league. Like, th yeah. they have taken on people who are a major pain in the ass for their organizations. And it only comes down to, do they think the value of said player, you know, is worth it to the organization for whatever external headaches happen? And quite frankly, they, the NFL has made the determination, Lindsay, not even just for stars, like for middle-of-the-road players. So that's why I always thought that that yeah. particular excuse yeah, was, like just, was, was just a way for them to not really offer why they didn't want him, which gets into much larger culture war, political, and other stuff. Yeah, and the whole, like, you know, you can't handle that. We don't want the distraction. We can't handle the distraction. Like, 
you can handle the distraction. If you're saying that you can't handle having 50 extra media requests a week or that people are talking about you on Twitter, like what are you even doing? I mean, it's the NFL. Like that's your business. You know, 20 million, you should be psyched that 20 million people give a shit about your team every week on CBS, Fox or NBC. Yeah. I mean, I think the, like the Trump fear was kind of, I agree a hundred percent. Yeah. But that is not really the case. Look, the, the MAGA trolls will end up in their Twitter mentions. And yeah, stuff. That, it, that will still happen. But this fear of like people are not going to watch us and they're not going to come to our games anymore. I don't think that really bears out. Um, well, and also, let's let's be honest. The 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 <laughs> I mean, I, you, you know, I, I, I have had so many of these discussions about NBA viewership. I want to throw myself out, off a window sometimes. But the reality of those who claimed in 2016, 2017 that I'll never watch the NFL again and the NFL will never be the same again. Like, I mean, look back on that five, six years from now and how absurd it is, given just looking at the NFL viewership now, the the franchise valuation. We're about to see the Denver Broncos sold for for like, spa- you know what I'm saying? Like, like outer space dollars. money. Yeah. yeah, like so it had no impact. Like literally, I could tell you metrically, it had zero impact. None of this stuff back then, all the Kaepernick stuff had any impact on the bottom line of the league and Kaepernick, I imagine, and people who support Kaepernick would probably argue that the league is now more aligned with him, at least publicly, in terms of yeah. social justice initiatives and stuff like. So, like the real reality is, like it had no. Once the league sort of decided, like we're we're not going to necessarily cave into all these external voices. Like they continue to churn on, and the, one of the realities of modern day America is people are obsessed with football. It is one of the few things left that brings us together as a community, no matter where we're from or no matter who we are. Yeah, I mean, I think the NFL still has some very obvious problems with um, ra- racial justice, maybe. Agreed. I'm, I'm trying oh, to yeah. figure Look out the exact Look at their coaching word. hirings. Yeah, I mean, there's some very, yeah, obviously some very, very serious issues that are going on and like painting racism in the end zone and writing, you know, it takes all of us. Like that hasn't solved anything, right? I mean, I but you're right in that like the, league-wide the attitudes have changed a lot more um you know Colin Kaepernick was the first and it's always really hard and he sacrificed the prime years of his career and potentially the rest of his career if this Raiders thing does if it doesn't pan out or this doesn't lead to other opportunities um for this but he was hardly the only player who ended up doing some sort of protest um he spawned a complete movement and you know in 10 years in 50 years I hope our kids um, well, probably your kids, if they're being raised in Canada, I hope my child in America <laughs> is able to learn about what Colin Kaepernick did um, and his the, the good that he did for our society and not just for the NFL. And, you know, I hope they're able to learn about how he was wronged um, by the league. And if he does get back in, I hope that that is part of the story. And I know that there are a lot of people in our business who, you know, are going to be up for telling that, you know, I'm the look, the, the staff at NFL Network has changed a lot in the last few years. You know, I'm, I'm really encouraged. Well, like Steve Weish was the, on, on the front of all of this. He was one of yep. the first interview with Kaepernick after his the very first time. I believe he, he was the reporter who recognized the he protest. Was. Yeah, right? I'm not sure yeah. if he was the one who spotted it first, but he was the one who had the like the wherewithal to pull Colin Kaepernick aside after yeah. that preseason game go. and ask what happened. Um, you know, Jim Trotter, you know, I think there's a lot of, um, really talented, really smart people who are kind of capable of telling the story from a league perspective and then 
from writing perspective that, you know, if he does end up getting back in, we can have the type of conversations now that maybe the broadcast networks weren't up for having uh, in a nuanced way back in 2017 or 2018. Uh, as someone who sort of writes about this stuff, I would have no faith, honestly, in the broadcast networks <laughs> talking about this with nuance and depth. I'd love to be proven wrong. So that'd be awesome, actually, if that Yeah, if that I think happens. maybe I'm thinking more of the report. Yeah, I mean, we'll see what No, it, but it, I mean, we, maybe broadcast, we will be proven. But, maybe I'll be proven wrong, which would be awesome. But well, yeah, around, I mean, surrounding... Well, not, I mean, this yeah. is a not Kaepernick related, but like, do we have any faith that the teams that are going to be calling Cleveland Browns games this year are going to have... None. No, no. They will, to, do, do, uh, do, it will be... Well, all the it'll, adversity it'll be, couch, it'll be couched year. in off off field distraction, you know, whatever it is. It'll be very pro forma that you'll either do quickly on the game coverage or or a little bit in the studio. And like I, I, I again, obviously, should they? Of course, but like having written about this for too long at this point, like I'm a realist. Like they're not going to do it. Their rights holder partners with the league, by and large, when it comes to television, for the for the most part, not not on every issue. But by and large, they're not going to hit third rail issues that the league office does not want them to hit in any kind of depth because they are partners in all this. And they want you to focus on the game. They want you to, to, to keep your eye on this stuff. And many times it does take a significant amount of courage for the rights holder partners on broadcast to, you know, to report on things the league doesn't want. And to talk about this stuff, I mean, listen, you saw ESPN was in the doghouse with the NFL for years and years and years and years because they were really aggressive on their concussion reporting. And it cost them. It cost them games. They never made the Super Bowl rotation. They are in there now. So um, so the short answer on all that, Lindsay, is I, I, I don't expect it. I want to ask you this, and then we'll, we'll finish up with some access stuff um, because, you know, again, you, you, you cover the sport on a day-to-day basis. Like – Let's forget about Colin Kaepernick for a second, the individual. But realistically, can a quarterback who's out of the NFL for six years, like, like is that possible to come back? He has an advantage. He's not 40. He's 34. But you know what I mean? Like, is that you You cover the sport. You talk to quarterback coaches. Like, I don't know the answer to this, but, like, is the sport, like, is it possible for someone to sort of step in after that length of being away and to be able to pick it up? in what would be a fairly short amount of time, right? Just a couple months. Yeah, I mean, I we don't know. I mean, I guess we've never really seen this exact type of thing happen. You know, it's been probably a long time since somebody has taken a real, like, sabbatical from the NFL um, from from playing, act, you know, actual games. But, like, look, I was out at Broncos OTAs a couple of days ago. I live in Denver, and, um, you know, I've always looked at, like, Josh Johnson is kind of the um, – he was poking holes in all of the arguments that these teams would try to make about like, Oh, Colin, Colin hasn't played in a long time and it's been too long. Well, you know, Josh Johnson, Josh Johnson has this career where like he'll go long stretches without playing. I think he had gone like three plus years without throwing a pass in a game. And he kept getting signed because if you're, um, you know, if you're smart, if you're a good teammate, if you work hard in practice, you can come in and you can slide in and be a backup quarterback. And there was just this assumption for so long, probably unfairly that like Colin Kaepernick couldn't slide into a backup role. Um, But if he knows that this is his way back in right now, I don't see why there's any reason that he can't, you know, step right in to practices and meeting rooms. And, you know, we know he's been working out, right? I mean, he, he clearly looks fit. Um, 
and there's a lot of really bad quarterbacks in the league. You know, we just did a kind of a, a quarterback draft on our podcast, The Athletic Football Show, the other day, and we got basically to 15, and we were like, I don't know where we go after this. I'm not I'm not psyched about any of these options. So <laughs> like, no, nobody's saying that he needs to be a top five quarterback, but like, can he be a top 40 quarterback? Probably even at age 34 after not having played in five years. And, um, you know, I think at least for me, I come back to like, he didn't play, he didn't not play the last six years or whatever by choice, right? I mean, this wasn't because he was hurt or was um, not interested in working out. You know, he by all counts, has been keeping himself ready for this type of opportunity while also pursuing his other passions and being, you know, doing all of his camps and all of the the activist work that he's um, that he's done. Um, so now that he's getting a chance to finally come in and throw, and that's what the, I think that's when it comes back to to me is that it's not that like he hasn't been signed to a team, that he hasn't been on a roster. It's that until this week, no one has even had the courage to say, come into our facility and throw. Like, let's just, let me see you work out, run a few, you know, we'll, we'll bring out some practice squad receivers and you can run some routes. Let's sit in a room and get you on the board and kind of see where you're at football wise. Nobody would even do that. It's, it's so it, that to me was the clearest sign of like, this guy is being blackballed. Nobody will even let him have a workout because you can't say like, oh, we don't know what kind of shape he's in if you're not even going to bring him in. Um, yeah. But now that door is opened just a tiny bit and we'll, we'll see if anything, we'll see if anything comes out of it. I want to uh, finish up with, um, with some acts with with a with a question to on access and that is um you know in your position obviously as the head of the uh pfwa you you probably go back and forth with the league or at least the league's public relations officials on on access for the media and things like that there was always sort of a fear in a post-covid world that professional sports leagues would use covid to sort of reduce access you know once you sort of down the road of of um of zoom press conferences and once you're down the road of reporters not going inside locker rooms it's sort of very easy to sort of just you know just maintain that and sort of say okay this is the way it's now going to be now in a post-covert environment so what what can you tell my listeners in terms of what kind of access do you expect uh the nfl reporters and writers to have this year and has there been any reduction let's say from uh 2017 2018 2016 you know a pre-covert world um, so sure. So, you know, but you're, you're right about the kind of the, those, those fears. And I remember we were on a conference call, um, before the league, before the NBA shut down, like as COVID was just kind of like entering our collective consciousness and we kind of could see this coming. And, you know, I think baseball was one of the first to say like, oh, we're going to close clubhouses. And this was in spring training. And, um, and when I say we, I was like the you know, board members, I think I was a vice president of PFWA at the time. It was, you know, baseball writers, NBA writers, APSC. We kind of all got on this call and we were like, what do we do? Because all of our collective fear was that once the doors were closed to the locker rooms, the clubhouses, the dressing rooms, that they would never reopen, that this would be, that this would be it. And so we have spent the last two years um, really working to regain the access that we lost. And, and ultimately, we understood what happened, right? I mean, we were in the middle of a unprecedented times. How often have we said that? I mean, this was, you know, there were, there were very, very serious health and safety reasons for, um, for what happened. Um, so, so we understood that, but now as we're, 
you know, I don't want to say we're out of the pandemic because we're certain I we're certainly not. I mean, I think we all know people who have maybe got gotten COVID for the first time here recently in the last couple of weeks. Um, so we're certainly here in the United States are not out of it, but we're at a very different place in terms of, you know, vaccination rates and kind of just risk tolerance, maybe for lack of a better term, but where, yep. you know, we're starting to get that access back. And, you know, I got, I don't even want to estimate how many hours I've spent on the phone with people in the league office, the NFL league office, the NFL PA with all of the clubs throughout the last year and a half or so talking about how do we get back into the locker room. Um, and the good news for people who value access and for reporters is that right now the NFL is um, prepared that once the regular season starts, all the locker rooms will be, will be open. We'll be back largely to our pre-pandemic level of access. There might wind up being some changes, some smaller changes along the way. But right now, as we're sitting here in late May, there's five teams that have opened their locker rooms during OTAs, which it's not required in the off season. Um, but there's five teams that have already done so. Cowboys, Packers, Saints, Steelers, and Bengals have been having open locker room access. Um, and it's, it's, I have not heard any complaints yet about that. So that's, that's really, really encouraging that we're kind of on that, on that yeah. track. So, you know, I think what we, we realized is that, and what everybody realizes this, this zoom world, this press conference only world, it's not better for anybody. Um, the press conferences are not better for the players. They're way too performative. Um, there's way too many instances of, you know, kind of those gotcha moments, lacking context, lacking follow-ups and actual conversation, um, you know, the nuance that you can get when you can actually have a conversation. Um, you know, I, I don't think the battles are over. I think we're going to have to continue fighting for the access along the way. But it was huge for us in NFL when Major League Baseball Clubhouses reopened uh, back, I guess that was in training, uh, spring training. When that happened, that was really, really big for us. And uh, and now hopefully the NFL can be a leader. NFL media can be a leader for some of the other sports, NBA and NHL, who will kind of start their new seasons later in the fall. Last one for me, Lindsay, and I know you saw this from um, uh, league meetings. You know, the, the, the league is trying to figure out what to do with its Pro Bowl weekend. It's sort of like been a long standing, you know, what should we do with this? Like, I think a lot of... Uh, NFL viewers and fans still don't realize like this thing does big business like yeah. in terms of television viewership. I mean, even uh, numbers are down significantly, obviously, from its highs, but it still did off the top of my head, 6.8, 6.9 million viewers. I mean, that's the equivalent of postseason games in almost every other sport. So like I think it would be insane to to sort of kill it whole. Yeah. But I also realize it's really not a great product players seemingly don't want to be part of it the way they used to. Do you have any senses to, at least from the league side, what this may ultimately, they'll work with their TV partners, of course, on whatever it ultimately becomes. But have you heard from the football side what they're interested maybe in doing? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that they want, that they want to keep is like making it special for the players that are honored, you know, that, that get that honor because, you know, we could, they have a bigger discussion about like, what does a pro bowl actually mean and how are those players chosen and what sort of a, you know, when we're considering like all pro versus pro bowl and all those sorts of things, but it is, it is still an honor, right? I mean, it's still something that's going to go on these guys' resumes. And ultimately if they're up for, you know, 
contract negotiations or big things like the Hall of Fame. I mean, it's stuff that gets mentioned. So it does still matter, you know, having an all-star team, you know, those things are still important. Um, So they want to find a way to make sure that those guys are, you know, get some get some time in the spotlight and get get honored. But I think it's been obvious for quite a long time that that Pro Bowl game doesn't work. Just football is not a sport that you can play at half speed. And I don't for one second blame any of these guys for not wanting to play a very dangerous sport at uh, full speed when they don't have to and risk that sort of injury. So um, yeah, they need to come up with some sort of way that will, you know, make guys want to go show up in the first place. And when they were kind of they always wanted to go to Hawaii because it was this like vacation and they'd bring their families if they wanted to. And, and that was nice. I think having it, if they're, if they want to keep having it in Las Vegas, I think that will be a draw for a lot of players. It wasn't perfect last year and they're going to have to figure out. I mean, the fact that when a player was arrested immediately following the pro bowl is um, troubling and something they're going to have to deal with if they want to keep holding events in Las Vegas. Um, but they need to make it a draw. They need to make it worthwhile for these players to go. So um, I will say this is a perfect opportunity for some athletic cross promotion. Um, uh, I guess on when Tuesday, a couple days ago this week, I wrote like a five step plan for fixing the pro bowl um, on our site. And it was kind of a silly little story of just like, what are ways that we could, how, how could the NFL make this fun? Something that we'd want to watch. And I basically kind of laid it out as, um, you know, they already do kind of these like the skill, skill uh, competition, you know, those type of things. I kind of pitched as like, let's make it as like a field day, you make some teams, AFC versus NFC, um, offense versus defense, maybe you do some other fun pairings, you know, college rivalries, or, um, you know, you do, you find some fun ways to pair these up. And you do all those, they already do a dodgeball game and a precision passing game. Um, so really just lean all the way into the fun stuff. Um, get weird, get silly, do some obstacle courses, nothing that's actually dangerous. We don't want any of the, you know, the torn Achilles tendons, those type of things, because you're playing, uh, you know, beach football or whatever. Um, and then I said, let's turn it into a telethon and use pe- people are still watching, even if it's only 7 million people, which was about, I think it was what, 6.7 or something last year. A significant decrease, but that's not insignificant. Um, yeah, no, that's so a great idea. Actually, let these players, whether it's you know when they did the draftathon a couple of years ago, and I think they raised nine million dollars or so for COVID relief. Um, you know, maybe that's maybe the bar. It's maybe it's not nine million dollars, but you know, there's the NFL has a gazillion charitable partners. All of the players individually have charities, foundations, things that they care about, and if this, if they want to, if one of the league priorities is like let's honor these players and make it special for them. Give them that platform to highlight their charities and their own individual foundations and, you know, raise money. If there's winner, you know, these guys pay, pay the guys to go pay the guys to be there. But then when they win, if your team wins the, you know, I put in my silly little article and noodle war. Cause I just watched my kid do it at field day and it was hilarious. They run around whacking each other with pool noodles. I was like, that's great. I want to see Aaron Donald and, Josh Allen hit each other with pool noodles. Fantastic. Sign me up. Um, you know, if your team wins contest A or B or whatever it might be, you know, you win $10,000 for your charity um, and then let other people, let fans contribute. Um, I also said they should let the Manning brothers host it and make it a sub Manning cast because it would be fun. They'd be able to bring in all the celebrities. It would be silly. Peyton Manning loves the Pro Bowl more than anybody I've ever met in my entire life. Like he is literally the only person who loves the Pro Bowl. Um 
let's see. And then I think I also incorporated just a lot of live betting, uh, as much betting as possible on every single element of all of the silly games they put in the Pro Bowl. So that's my that's yeah, those, my pitch. That's no, my pitch are, for how to lot, do it. <laughs> there's actually a lot of interesting suggestions there, and the telethon one is really really interesting. Actually, that that is a pretty good inducement, and maybe to get players uh, there. So check that piece out on the Athletic. Lindsay Jones, kind enough to come on this podcast. She is a national writer for covering the NFL for The Athletic, and as I mentioned before, the head of the Pro Football Writers of America. Lindsay, thank you so much for uh, popping on today, and uh, I'll, of course, be following and reading your stuff. And get in on that Broncos uh, auction. I mean, you, you must have some friends in Denver who have $5, million, $5 billion I, lying um, around. I, I don't think if I added every single person that I know in Denver together, we could afford it, but... Um, you know, we'll we'll see we'll see we'll see what we can do. Well, what's crazy is I, mean, I just mentioned Peyton Manning is like Peyton Manning is interested in being part of an ownership group. John Elway is interested in being part of an ownership group. Like two of the most famous, probably wealthiest individuals. Yeah, but they're not. They're They're not anywhere even close. They're not even there. Exactly. They're nowhere nowhere, near principal owners. They're 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 minority owners. So um, it's amazing. Yeah, it's it's going to be pretty pretty wild, and to see what will happen then ultimately if there's a new stadium you know the um rob walton is one of the the people who's bidding who is you know yep. gazillion, the, uh, gazillionaire Walmart, right? also yeah. you know a, the first cousin of stan Kroenke's wife who the Kroenke's obviously own the rapids the nuggets and the avalanche own a lot of property downtown near the broncos stadium so it's like there's starting to be a lot of really interesting business related angles but um hmm. But yeah, I don't. I don't think I uh, reside in the right tax bracket to be uh, <laughs> yeah, same. to be pitching same it here. on the front coast. Uh, all right, Lindsay, Lindsay Jones, everybody. Thank you, Lindsay. Thanks, Richard. All right, as I mentioned at the top, but I'm happy to give his resume again. Lee Diffie is NBC Sports' lead play-by-play commentator for its uh, IndyCar series, WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, MotoGP. Supercross coverage. If you're an Olympics fan, you no doubt will recognize the voice. He was the primary announcer for NBC's track and field coverage in Tokyo. He's obviously done a lot of winter sports as well for that network. We'll get the plug out of the way. Indianapolis 500 is coming up this Sunday. Five hours of live race day coverage for um, NBC, Peacock, and Universo. That uh, pre-race starts at 11 a.m. Race coverage starts at 12.30 p.m. Obviously a major, major event on the sporting calendar. And pleased to be joined on the Sports Media Podcast by Lee Diffie. Lee, welcome. And uh, you are, you're, in, you're in Indianapolis, you've told me right now, correct? I am in Indy. And Richard, what, I, uh, what a delight. I've read hundreds of your articles, but now I get to speak to the man. Lee, that's j- just a very polite Australian way of calling me old, and I appreciate the politeness <laughs> on that. All right, Lee, I want to ask you, let's start here. Um, tell me who said this. A race is a race is a race. The body of it, the beginning of it, the skeleton of a race is kind of the same, but there are just some different moving parts, pardon the pun, and I've really enjoyed the challenge. Do you know who said that? Yeah, that was me. That was Correct. me. Yep. Lee Diffie said that. So from your perspective... Um, I want to. I'm always interested in process, and I don't have a lot of motorsports broadcasters on this podcast. I, Jamie uh, Little's been on this a number of times. Shannon Spake, not a ton of of play by play callers. So, from your perspective, what are the elements to being a successful or well thought motorsports broadcaster? 
Well, I think it's um, I think I think there's a, a number of parallels with other sports, and and that it's incumbent upon any play-by-play person to be a good storyteller, because we all right you 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 write, and you know you write very well, and why you're a good journalist is because you tell good stories, and that's what we have to do just in a different medium, and so I put the responsibility on myself to be to try and be entertaining i think if somebody described my style it would be energetic so i bring enthusiasm because i feel that enthusiasm always wins out right if you're passionate about anything you're passionate about journalism you're passionate about bricklaying you're passionate about lawn mowing you're passionate whatever architecture um if you're passionate about it you've already won half the battle and so be be enthusiastic about your craft and and be knowledgeable about your craft and be a, be a good storyteller like try and you know at the end of the day it's sport it's business but it's also entertainment so the 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 man or woman sitting on the couch having a beer or a glass of wine or sitting with their children or sitting with their significant other or whatever they they've turned on because they want to watch something that is entertaining and interesting so try and help elevate that for them Lee, um, when you're doing something like um, uh, MotoGP or Supercross, I, I think there's an expectation, at least certainly anecdotally, that the people who are watching this are probably very, very much diehards of that. Absolutely, sport. they know the Absolutely. rules. They know the they know the players. They know what's involved in that. And they've probably been watching a long time. The Indy 500 is kind of interesting and unique in that, in addition, obviously, IndyCar fans. It would probably be the one IndyCar race where you would have a massive, for lack of a better phrase, casual sports fan perhaps tuning in and checking it out. How do you navigate uh, calling such an event so that you you give the, the diehard fan who's there every week what they want, but at the same time, you make the broadcast accessible to people who are not there every week? I think you, you've just got to be really, um, you've got to be really selective about what information you use when, and then you try and, um, without insulting the hardcore, you try and sprinkle stuff in that gets the casual viewer. So, you know, this is kind of an easy one, but the defending winner and the four-time winner, Elio Castro Neves, well, he's more than just a race car driver. He was on Dancing with the Stars and he won Dancing with the Stars. And, you know, that's a really successful franchise that has huge viewership over the years. And, so if you tap on that, people, you know, the casual viewer will recognize or maybe remember, maybe I've sparked the memory in them. And, you know, you kind of um, throw in things like that. Just the other day during qualifying, um, you know, I made my our director and producer giggle because I was talking about the reigning series champion, Alex Pelot of Spain. And I said, you know, the, uh, the coffee shop owner from Barcelona, you've never seen a barista drive like this. You know, and you gotta you gotta try and bring in that, like you do with your your writing and 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 your reports and and stories. You gotta try and sprinkle in some the human interest element. And you know, there's a car doing 240 miles an hour, but there's actually a human behind the wheel. So try and tell the human story. F1 numbers in the U.S., as you know, are soaring. Um, you could probably do multiple podcasts, obviously, to try to examine the reasons why. IndyCar viewership was its highest through three races uh, at the beginning of this year since 2003. We should note that, obviously, big thanks to that airing on broadcast television. 
NASCAR um, had averaged a little under $5 million for Fox Sports, which was way up over the first eight races. The last couple of races, I think, are more flat. The larger point is this, Lee. It feels like motorsports is having a moment in America. We have seen other times in um, this iteration where a, a certain motocross uh, element, let's say like NASCAR, may have had its moment and certainly did, I think, when um, – you know, whether it was uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s sort of prime or maybe even, you know, seniors prime. But it does feel like for anecdotally, at least, like there's more people who are interested in motorsports across um, a, 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 across a broad spectrum. What, why do you think that is? And I obviously, as someone who's obviously done F1 and you've done all this stuff, you you're, must be paying attention to it. What do you think? Well, um, I really, really genuinely appreciate you acknowledging that because it is it is um a, a golden moment like I, I just even last year i asked um successful team owner chip ganassi um about you know what do you think you know i'm i said to him i'm kind of tired of people talking about the good old days or the glory days of indycar and and he said to me the glory days are now he said, this is where it's at. He said, forget, you know, people looking in the rearview mirror. He said, the glory days are now. And the sport's healthy. I'm talking specifically IndyCar, but generally motorsport, um, you know, and although we, we being NBC Sports are in a collaborative relationship on USFL with Fox, um, you know, we don't, you don't often find people from a network talking glowingly about another network because it, at the end of the day, we're competitors. But I'm really pleased for Fox that they're getting the NASCAR ratings that they are because it helps the sport. You know, it helps them, but, but you know, universally it helps the sport. Formula One is, is seeing a meteoric rise uh, thanks to Netflix Drive to Survive. You know, during the pandemic, it was, just, it was just sublime timing that Drive to Survive came out, um, you know, and the pandemic hit and people were at home. They needed something to watch and... You know, not just men, men and women um, were just captivated by it. And I think that has actually had an overflow effect to the other disciplines of motorsport. Um, IndyCar is a roaring success at the moment because of the stability of the sport. You know, we're seeing field numbers that we haven't seen in many years. Commercially, it is very stable and, and thriving. Um, the ownership of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the series by Roger Penske, you know, Roger is one of the most successful businessmen in the world and he brings his prowess and, you know, steady hand on the tiller to say, okay, I've got this and this is where we're going. And you have to remember too that Roger and the Penske Corporation took ownership of the series right at the beginning of the pandemic. And we did the first ever Indianapolis 500 with nobody here, which was just totally weird and bizarre but Roger navigated us through that. And, you know, as NBC being a partner of, of the IndyCar series, you know, we all held hands and there was, a, <laughs> there was a point in time, Richard, where we did six weeks of a virtual racing series and uh, an iRacing series where they IndyCar engaged the drivers, you know, not just regu regular fans. I remember. It was actually pretty it was successful, really, it, actually. It was crazy. I was sitting, I was sitting yeah. at my dining room table in Connecticut Townsend Bell was sitting at his dining room table in Pacific Palisades and Paul Tracy was in Scottsdale, Arizona. I was using my 11-year-old son gaming headset as a microphone, you know, and my other son's iPad for timing and scoring. It was crazy, but it worked. And, and 
Anyway, sorry, I'm getting a little bit off track there, but I just, motorsport is healthy and I, I really appreciate you noticing that because, you know, this weekend at the Indy 500, it is the biggest single day sporting crowd in the world, you know, bigger than the Super Bowl, bigger than the Olympics on a single day and, and it's special. So, um, yeah, let's, uh, let's enjoy the moment. I, uh, you know, I, I cannot say that uh, um, I'm a... Uh a heavy indie car watcher, uh, just to be blunt. I will check out the Indy 500, but I'm not one who's going to um, watch that on a week-to-week basis. Um, I probably watched more NASCAR than any of the other motorsports. Uh, I will say F1 has got me interested much more in the last uh, two years, and it's a direct result from the Netflix uh, series, as you mentioned. But as you look at the storylines in this race, um, Scott Dixon uh, has started on the pole five times, He's only won once in 2008. Jimmy Johnson, who had won the NASCAR Cup Series seven times, uh, has transitioned to IndyCar. He makes his Indy 500 debut. So for you, Lee, and the rest of the NBC team, man, I feel like there's two, like, I mean, there's probably more than two, obviously, but there are really two ma- big-time stories that I feel like a, uh, your average sports fan could sort of wrap their head around. One, this guy who's won the pole all the time but hasn't necessarily cashed in from the pole. And then Jimmy Johnson, one of the, not one of, the most dominant figure in NASCAR for a decade stretch is a rookie on the Indy 500. That, I don't know. To me, it seems like you ha- you guys have two pretty interesting stories on top of uh, all the other stories. We we sure have a um, uh, an abundance of stories. So, you know, Scott Dixon has been, He's a six-time series champion. If he wins the championship this year, he ties AJ Foyt, the best ever as far as championship wins. Um, You have Elio Castro-Neves, the defending winner. If he wins another Indy 500, he's in a club all by himself. Nobody has ever won five Indy 500s. Um, Jimmy Johnson could, I'm not going to say easily because it's definitely not easy, Jimmy could win this race. And I can hear your viewers laughing at me or your listeners laughing at me right now. But it's true. He has not been. He has not achieved the results he wanted to on road and street courses. But on an oval, look out! And Jimmy has done more 500 mile races in his career than all of the IndyCar field put together. So to know the cadence of a 500 mile race is something very special, and Jimmy understands it better than anybody in this race. Now, has he ever done a 500 mile IndyCar race? No, he hasn't. But just the the components and the architecture of a 500-mile race, he knows better than anybody else. He qualified in the top 12. He almost destroyed his car in qualifying. He had had one of the most spectacular saves that you've ever seen at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and he's ready. So um, if I get the fortune, if I have the fortune of calling Jimmy Johnson across the yard of bricks as, as only the third human being to ever win the Daytona 500 and Indy 500, it'll be a pleasure. Uh, all right, a couple more here. Uh, James Hinchcliffe makes his Indy 500 booth debut as an analyst. He um, he was on the show that I did in Toronto many, many, many times. He's very, very uh, – he's glib. He's smart. He strikes me as somebody who, if he wants this as a career, has a real chance to do it long term. What are your early impressions of him uh, just as a potential analyst and – and somebody who could theoretically maybe do this for a while. Well, he has, um, James has fitted into our team really well. Um, TV is nothing new to him. Um, going way back almost, maybe even almost 20 years when he was a youngster, 
he did some television in Australia, actually, at the Surface Paradise IndyCar Indy race, just just for like the the world feed, and I think maybe even the public address. But um, so, you know, you mentioned he's smart. You know, even when he was on his upward trajectory of trying to get to IndyCar, he knew that doing television and broadening himself is an important factor, like so many athletes do these days across um, any sport. Um, it's it's really difficult. Uh, to come into an established team. But what he has done is he has come in kind of like with a velvet glove, not a sledgehammer. He hasn't come in there saying, hey, I'm James Hinchcliffe. I'm the mayor of Hinchtown and stand aside. I know everything. This is, you know, listen to me. Um, He hasn't done that at all. He's come in very respectfully, very quietly and carefully. And um, he and I have had uh, several private chats um, because he wanted to pick my brain about television. You know, I've been in network television around the world for 25 years and he's smart enough to know to ask people the right questions. And and at the end of the day, he wants to be the best he can be. It's kind of like Jimmy going into IndyCar from NASCAR to to IndyCar. Um, That's what Hinch wants to do in in television. And um, thankfully our um, executives recognize his skill set and is savvy and, um, you know, we sit left to right. It goes me, Townsend Bell, James Hinchcliffe, and he's sitting beside Townsend Bell, who is one of the best sports analysts in TV sport, period, across any sport. Um, And so I can already see James feeding off Townsend really well. And together, you know, I have an old saying, Richard, you have to get on off air to get on on air. And the three of us went out to dinner the other night. The three of us get on really well. And you've got to remember that there was a change in the booth this year. You know, Paul Tracy, IndyCar Series champion, um, you know, he was with us for eight years. So when a team member leaves, you know, it's like a family member leaving. And so then you have to welcome in the new family member and there's a period of transition and bonding. And, you know, even though we've known James for a long time, he and Townsend raced against each other. It's a, it's a, you know, it's like, look at what happened with, look at what happened with Fox and ESPN in, in football. So Troy Aikman goes, but he doesn't want to go over there and be by himself. He wants Joe, you know, he wants Joe Buck to be there with him because if you get on off air, you get on on air and a team is a team. And, and so that's what uh, we have been doing for the first five rounds of the year with James. We're, we're bonding, we're gelling, he's learning, we're learning him and it's so far so good. Like it's, he's a great guy. We like each other personally and professionally. And um, he's been a really nice addition to our family. Yeah, you are very correctly. Every, every broadcast, uh, every broadcaster I've ever spoken with has always said that the chemistry is forged away from the booth. It's not forged in the booth. And totally, totally. If it's at a restaurant or if it's on a golf course, if it's, you know, water skiing, whatever, you know, you gotta, you gotta know who you're working with. The all right. The final couple. I I, I want to end on the Olympics, but before I get to that, um, you you were born in Australia. Uh, you are now a. I think you're a dual that's, citizen of that's fact right. of yep. Australian yep. U.S. If you're not, correct me. Um, but I'm curious because again, I I um, haven't talked to many broadcasters or many people on this podcast who were born and born in Australia, and it, very very. Um, Sort of just sort of uh, stream of consciousness, how you want to answer it. But growing up, um, when you were watching Austra- sports on Australian television as a 
as a teenager, uh, maybe even younger than a teenager. What was that like in comparison to what a teenager or 20 something would watch in the U S and I'm not, I know the sports are different, but I'm talking about sort of the presentation. Is it, is, is the presentation of sports similar in Australia? And if it's not, how is it different than what, what a 25 year old watching, let's say the NFL or major league baseball today? Sees? Um, that's a really good question. I would say there's probably a little bit more um, glitz and polish and pizzazz here. Um, um, Australian sports broadcasting and presentation is um, just very to the point. Um, there's probably a little bit more. There's probably a little bit more Hollywood here, if if that's okay to say that. Um, but with that being said, I wouldn't. I, I honestly feel that I wouldn't be the broadcaster I am today if I didn't go through what I went through in Australia. Like it was very um, – because I didn't graduate, you know, like – so my teammate, I was just texting with him before, my teammate is Mike Tarico, you know, one of the best ever on television. And, you know, Mike is a graduate and an alum of Syracuse, celebrated, you know, university and has pumped out and produced so many terrific – journalists, communicators, broadcasters, etc. I don't have that. I don't have that background. I'm actually a PE teacher. <laughs> you know, I taught, you know, I, I taught sport and, wow. and physical education. And, um, you know, I got, I got into this industry through the back door. And, uh, you know, when I first started, I was working at Network 10 in Sydney, Australia, in the biggest, you know, one of the biggest newsrooms in Australia. I, Richard, I couldn't even type. I was a one finger, two finger typer. And I used to hide in the corner of the newsroom and just, you know, I basically BS'd my way through it. And um, I knew I could talk and I knew I could speak and I knew I had a, a different voice. But, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't a journo. And uh, so I kind of I got in and I learned the hard way. So I really treasure my upbringing on the Australian television scene because it taught me everything. You know, I used to um, watch CNN sports worldwide, you know, and, and, and learn. I used to, as a kid... We had a show on Channel 9 called The Wide World of Sports, similar to ABC Sports here. And I used to watch the American guy, Warner Wolf, you know, and he'd say, Roll, let's, let's go to the videotape. Yeah, of course. And uh, so we were raised on a very healthy diet of American sports. And um, I don't know, I feel, I feel really privileged that I've, that I've had two lives, you know, the, the, the Aussie life and the American life. And uh, proudly, as you mentioned before, I'm, a, I'm an American citizen, um, but I'll never lose my Australian roots. And um, I just feel lucky to, to, to have both of these amazing countries as part of me, part of my life. Um, my wife uh, was born in Australia, raised in Canada. She is a dual citizen. And we have two sons that were born in Atlanta, Georgia. So they're proud American Aussies. And, um, you know, this has just been a, the most wonderful journey. And, um, yeah, it's... And I, I, you, you don't even know the impact of your question because I think back often to sitting on the couch, the family home, watching AFL and rugby league and rugby union with my parents and my, my brother and sister and, you know, sports just been our life. So to be here talking to you uh, in Indianapolis on the cusp of the Indy 500, it's, um, it's all pretty crazy stuff, but I'm just I'm hanging on and enjoying the ride. You, um, you called track and field at the Tokyo Olympics. And those of us who have been fortunate enough to cover Olympics in person, as well as just our Olympic fans, uh, just understand just the magnitude of, of track and field at the Olympic Games. It's, you know, 
whether it goes back to uh, Jesse Owens to sort of more modern day Usain Bolt. It, it's you know the the what happens at the Olympic Games uh, lasts and stands far longer than all of our lives. So when you let me sort of start with this. What what did you learn, Lee, about calling that sport at the highest level? Because calling the Olympic Games track and field meet is just very, to be blunt, it's different than if you called a Diamond League race or if you called uh, a race at Oregon or something like that. It, like, you know, your call may be played 50 years from now, 100 years from now. Yeah, it's, it's um, you, you have to, Richard, you have to kind of keep yourself in check. And, and, and not lose focus because of the magnitude of it. And, and um, as much as it is exciting and thrilling and honourable, which it really is, to, to have that opportunity, um, you really have to focus on the moment. And um, uh, I still pinch myself that, uh, that my bosses at NBC uh, had the faith and, uh, to give me that position. And then I get to sit beside two Olympic legends in Sonia Richards-Ross and Addo Bolden, which, you know, God, I wish I could record our off-air chats because <laughs> you know, they're, they're amazing. Um, and then you're there. It, I do have to say it was pretty bizarre being in a 70,000-seat stadium in Tokyo with, with, yeah, with, with about 1,000 no people there, if that, 500 people there maybe. Um, it, that was kind of bizarre. And I don't know. It's like when you, you think about when you write certain words or you put a sentence together or the structure of an article that you've written, um, you have to really think about like, how am I going to call this race? I don't want to cock it up. You know, I want to, I want to be good. I want to, I want to be accurate. I want to be precise. I want to be entertaining. And you got to try and bundle all of that up into less than 10 seconds when it counts. Right. So we have a we have a cadence that we have done for years now, where before the gun goes off, a lot of it is Atto on the sprints on the middle distance races. It's a combo of Atto and Sonia, and and then when the gun goes off, that's my time. And it's um, I don't know. I, I think I'd be lying if I said it wasn't. You know, I wasn't nervous, or it, it makes you it makes you kind of get up like you know you, you've got to be on you've got to be on it and uh you in a in split seconds you're trying to deduce who got the best start which lane is moving more than the other lane and then you know, we had this total shock that an italian marcel jacobs won um right at the same time when a fellow italian was winning the high jump in a tie a gold medal tie it was all kind of bizarre but yeah you just have to um it, People always ask, oh, do you rehearse what you're going to say? It's like, can't, you can't rehearse what you're going to say. Like, it's in the moment. You have, to, you have to let the moment come to you and you deliver what you're going to say. It's kind of, I don't know. I couldn't even, I couldn't even tell somebody how to do it because it's just, it's in the moment stuff. Yeah, the, uh, the walk up uh, when Otto Bolton and, um, and Sonia Richards uh, Ross uh, do the, uh, when the camera sort of takes you down all the different runners for the race and they give you like some quick bullet points on each of those. Phenomenal. It's great television, particularly Otto has been doing that for years. It, that's when you know that you have broadcasters who truly know their um, stuff. That's something as a track and field fan I love. All right, two, two more on this. One, I, I don't know how often you've thought of this, Lee, but like you, interestingly enough, you are a benefactor, I feel like, of some other sports, particularly let's say soccer. 
in that there was a time that an American audience, I think, almost would have demanded only like a American voice to call major events. That, of course, was just nonsense to start with, but that just was the reality in this country. And so a lot of that got chipped away and changed when we heard um, when we heard British voices do soccer in this country. And I wonder if you just ever thought about the fact that, like, you know, you you're a, you're someone with an Australian accent calling the uh, track and field back to United States viewers. Sometimes, you know, that may be, you know, in the tens of millions. It's kind of cool that like that exists in 2022, because honestly, I don't know if that would have happened in 1976 for the Montreal games or 1984 for the LA games. I, I think you're, you're hundred percent correct. Um, it wouldn't have happened decades ago. And um, you know, even this past winter games from Beijing, which, you know, Mike went over there and, and hosted the opening ceremony and was there for a few days, but the majority of us were in Stanford, Connecticut calling the games and when Mike then went to SoFi Stadium for the Super Bowl, he did the trophy presentation and threw live to myself and Bree Scharf and we did the women's monobob, which was a new category this year. That's right. yeah, that's and great. we went, Richard, we went, I mean, this is stuff that you, you, you dream of, like in certainly our bosses and sales department dream of. We went for 29 minutes commercial free and we sustained 30 million viewers That's for right. women's monobob. And, you know, I'm nice sure that Nice to have the Super Bowl as a lead-in, right? Uh, nice to have the Super Bowl. <laughs> and, I, and I don't care what the drop-off was. <laughs> we, we still held 30 million people. And I'm sure that there was more than one saying, where is this guy from? Is he from <laughs> New Zealand, South Africa? What is, what is this British guy? Do, you know, and um, look, I, I, I won't name names and I won't name networks, but, you know, I have been... Um, discriminated against more than once because of my voice. You know, I'm I'm, I'm a from a strange land, and I you know I don't I don't speak this way. But um, when I first came here 20 years ago in in 2002, I was kind of almost not embarrassed, but I was kind of a bit sheepish about my voice and the way I spoke. And here I am 20 years later talking to Richard Deitch and, and it's actually been my hallmark. You know, it's been my calling card and um, I feel very, uh, I never, never, ever um, forget that. And I'm very grateful for the people who have given me the opportunities to, to do it. And, um, you know, as you mentioned right at the top of the show, um, myself and my family, we're all dual citizens and, and I actually chose to be an American. I wasn't born an American. I chose to be an American. And because this country has given me so much. Yeah. The talking to me is that this signals the end of your career. Lee. <laughs> it's over. It's over. <laughs> um, it's over. So here's the, here's the, uh, just the last one. And then we will let you go. Um, you called the, um, what honestly may be the greatest track and field race of all time. It is totally subjective, but the men's 400 meter hurdles final, for the Tokyo Olympics, unreal. That's Karsten unreal Warhol yep. versus Roy Benjamin. Yep. Uh, it honest, it may be the greatest race I've ever seen. Uh, the highest level of achievement. Um, many people say Karsten Warhol. He ran basically the perfect race, or as perfect a race as a human being can be. Um, that race obviously happens very, very quick. But I don't know. You cert, if nothing else, after it, you realize, right? You had called one of the the greatest sporting events people have ever seen. Are you? Uh, in the moment, I mean, can you can your brain process as you're actually calling it? Like, oh my God, I'm, I'm. We are all witnessing something that 
will truly be one of the great Olympic moments in in history. So the 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 um the measure or the mark or the litmus test is Sonia is Sonia Richards Ross, and because not that she ran four hundred hurdles, she ran four hundred flat and is an Olympic gold medalist at it. But right. to see the excitement, like the build up, like. Honestly, mate, we were looking forward to that event more than the 100 meters because of what it promised. And then, you know, as you know, it could be football, hockey, baseball, basketball, whatever. You know, you, you get so jacked about certain events and then they don't deliver. And it's like, oh, that was a dud. And this event surpassed what we were expecting. You know, we knew it was going to be a great race. And we, you, me, Sonia, Addo, anybody, we thought that, American Rye Benjamin might topple the king, you know, and um, ultimately he didn't. But can you imagine, like, being Rye Benjamin, who's one of the nicest people, let alone, you know, global athletes you can meet, and he set a world record but got silver. <laughs> and silver is an incredible accomplishment at the Olympic Games, but, you know, that's not what he wanted. And um, it was just the most epic race, and uh, I'll never, ever forget it. And to answer your question in short, I'll just go back to what I said before. You can't kind of predict or think about what you're going to say. You know the elements of the story. You've got the best 200, sorry, the best two 400-meter hurdlers ever, ever. And they're going head-to-head and you just have to be in the moment, enjoy the moment, live the moment and just, yeah, go along for the ride because it was what a hell of a ride. That race was in my opinion, to your words, that was the, that was the event at the Olympics. E- easily the event of the Tokyo Olympics, and again, I there is a very there is a very good argument to make. It's the greatest track and field race of all time. Again, though, that's so. Can I ask you a question because you're across you, all sports? Sure. With it, without being yeah, too yeah. vain, how come how come motorsports play by play people never get never get a look in at the sports Emmys? It's always it's always stick and ball sports play by play people. How come they don't look at motors? Well, you're talking to someone who really how, dislikes the sports Emmys, Lee. So you're, you're how you're, come you're, how come they the don't right look at place? It. I've always thought it's better now, but it historically in the U.S. has been a very clubby insider event. It it uh it, it's not my thing. Um, I've I've actually never been, although I have admittedly watched it on virtual. Uh, I think there's uh, just to be very blunt. I, I think there's a a significant bias towards the very popular. U.S.-based sports like the NFL and and Major League Baseball and the NBA, you also need the, you know, you need the networks that put these events on to really, I think, push for what they think is their best work. So a lot of times, I think, you know, when it comes to these awards, there's a little bit of an element of marketing or at least campaigning, for lack of a better word. And so I think in order to... In order for a sport, I don't say this pejoratively, but I'll just call it a niche sport. In order for a niche sport to break out against some of these very, very major sports, I think you need people to really push for it. So that would be my sense as to why um, someone who's in the motorsports field doesn't get the same kind of acclaim or the same kind of Emmys as somebody who calls the NBA or who calls the NFL. It's, I think it's because the networks themselves, generally speaking, are pushing the the broader, bigger sports doesn't necessarily mean the performances are better. This is all a subjective medium anyway, but, um, but I think you're correct. You're not incorrect. And Let's I'm not asking for me, put it that I'm way, but you know, sport. 
You know, the, the, the sport needs recognition. No, listen, I get it. You, But you just, you know, again, you you happen to be talking to somebody who, like, honestly would, would you know, would, would 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 rather be running in 90 degree weather than to sh- to be at the sports Emmys holding a drink in my hand. So I'm probably not the right target audience to uh to answer questions about the uh the sports Emmys. My, my I will say this and I give them credit. Uh this woman named Justine Gubar who now runs that. It's a lot better today than it was 5 7 years ago, but all you have to do is sort of look in the history books. Like it used to be like the same seven people seemed to win everything. You know what I mean? And like that's not really reflective of the business, even if these people are super talented, if the same people over and over again are getting uh, uh, nominated. My advice, Lee, very bluntly, you know, get, get, no, get, get I, I know, I know, but I mean, it could, it could, it could be, it could be anything. <laughs> it could be diving. It could be, it could be lacrosse. It could I be, agree with like, you. Look, yeah, yeah. You know, open your eyes, like get, get outside the myopic. So you're coming from, I mean, to be very blunt, and I, and I appreciate it, but a little bit of what you're coming from is you're coming from a, a non-American perspective, you know, European perspective, perhaps an Australian perspective, even Canadian, when, you know, some of these sports that are not the main sports of the country, I think get are really, people appreciate them. You know, I, I live in Toronto, so I really appreciate how the CBC covers the Olympics because they give, you know, in many ways, they treat rowing the same exact way they treat hockey. You know what I mean? Like it's... At the Olympics, I'm talking about like it's it's important to them. It doesn't matter if one sport is more popular than the other. And well, the greater um, the greater. And I you, like you that. Brought- I just um, you know, there's always a commercial. Uh, I mean, you've lived in America sure. long enough to and, know that there's you, always a you commercial. You brought this up earlier in in the podcast. Um, we can point directly. So at the same time, we had Formula One on NBC for five years, and at the same time, when we started Formula One, is when Premier League started on NBC Sports. You can look at what NBC has done for Premier League and what Premier League has done for the sport of soccer slash football here here in the United States. So then you take a step a little bit away from that and you look at other what we would call here for the U.S. market, other fringe sports. One of the largest and fastest growing sports in the U.S. right now is rugby, right? And, and you can thank soccer, Premier League, as a result of that because people are now looking beyond the NFL is always going to be the juggernaut and the monster, the, the the massive thing that it is. It's so successful. It's so, you know, mesmerizing. And, and there's nothing going to shift that. That will always be the success that it is. So then you have to step away from that and look at other things. And I, I feel, and it might be naive or it might be fantasy, but I feel that the American sports um, public, viewing public and, and, and engaged public are looking at, different sports for different reasons and and they're looking outside the box my two sons play rugby and they and they do track and field and they ride dirt bikes they, they're, they're very active kids but my two sons play rugby and i was in greenwich connecticut the other week at their rugby games there was a ton of people there for, for for like 11 and 13 year old rugby games there was a ton of people there and i just stood back and i was observing i was doing like a a demographic survey and just, you know, there were different accents. There was, there was Americans, there were Brits, there were Aussies, there were, you know, like there was a, a ton of different people there. And I thought, wow, this is kind of cool. This is an, an interesting snapshot of the American sporting public, not at a mainstream American sport. We got it. Here's the last thing I'd sort of leave you with. And I think you, 
lived here long enough to see it. Like outside of probably the NFL, like not not everything's linear and like uh interests change, right? And generations change. And what I loved as a twenty five year old is gonna be different than what my kids love at twenty five. So I think in many ways you're right. I do think there are certain things that are so intrinsic to the culture that are so intrinsic monetarily and financially that they're not going to change. And I would honestly put the NFL and probably college football into that pot, you know, maybe baseball and the NBA too. But I do think there is room for, for sort of new sports to emerge. And I think a great example of that right now is just motorsports and how people are into it. And, and F1, yes, it's on a smaller level. They're only drawing a million, a million and a half. But like the point is like they've, you know, it's become a story where 20 years ago, I don't know how many people in this country were talking about F1. So things can change. So I think but, you, you but, make but an interesting you, point. You're going to laugh at this when I say this as a TV guy, but don't look at the ratings because I wasn't even in Miami for the weekend. I was in Miami at a corporate event on the Thursday. And Richard, it was off the charts. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. It was off the charts. And this weekend here in Indy, we're going to have in excess of 300,000 people at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Insane. What, like what sporting event draws that? There, there isn't another. So, you know, I was just, you couldn't see me, you know, because we're doing this verbally, uh, audio only. I, I, I had the biggest smile before when you said motorsports is on this uptick in this country and globally, because it is. It really is. And I don't know, I don't know the precise point or the fingertip. I don't know why. It's just. People are looking for stuff and I don't know, like even if we're getting some new viewers because of Netflix or F1 and they think IndyCar looks like F1, I don't know. I don't know what it It is. You know what? It's all good. Who cares? It doesn't matter. It's like, like, hey, you always go to a steak restaurant. Well, let me take you to sushi one night. You you might like it, you know? Yeah, I do think I am am in agreement with you that I think that raises all tides because I think the excitement that people get from one – motorsport um series or circuit i think will carry over i think if you like speed or if you like cars and you just sort of like whatever that sort of makes how that makes you feel i think you will um you will then sort of tune into other stuff i will just i'll leave you with this and again this is a nascar thing but when i worked at sports illustrated i had this incredible assignment i got to cover six nascar nascar races over eight weeks we were doing basically fan surveys but after i sort of went through all the rvs and talked to fans i was able to watch the race and like it was incredible to see and i i can't, i grew up in new york city like I, I have no nascar culture but it was like so incredible just to see like the level of skill on the the people in the mechanics and the the people who work the cars the amount of speed that existed there was incredible and absolutely like if a nascar race wasn't on i like might pop the channels to see like what other auto or motorsports sort of things were happening then. And that's because I got exposed to one of those series. So I am absolutely positive that if F1 is bringing some new casuals into the sport, it won't be all of them, but some people I guarantee will sample Indy because I think they'll just be interested. So let me ask you this, and you're not, you're not going to get arrested, okay, because they can't prove it. How, what is the fastest you've ever gone in a road car? Uh, yeah, not, not my brother is a, uh, my brother actually raced, uh, uh, cars in Long Island for many, many years. Uh, uh, like the, um, uh, very, like the, like, you know, like just like, uh, the, when you go like whatever, 200 yards, like those kind of like very fast speed cars. Yeah. So what's the fastest um, you've gone? 
maybe honestly, maybe one twenty, one twenty five okay. miles per hour. Not that, not that fast. So think about this. You you went one twenty. Yeah, and that was honestly like insane in my brain. It was insane for you, and you know sports. So these guys, these thirty three drivers this weekend, are doing double that. Yeah, it's, I can't even wrap my the, head. The, the other day, Connor Daly went 244 miles an hour into turn three. Yeah, a, incredible. I mean, and again, they do it They do it for hours. They do like, it for, 200, just, they, for yeah. 200 laps. Like, it's, yeah. it's insanity. So, I, I actually went um, on purpose to, to help our broadcast and to help myself. I went with it, one of our pit reporters, Kevin Lee, the other day we had a session off and we got in a golf cart and I went and I watched one of the practice sessions outside turn one at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And the experience was purely visceral, like the, the speed and it shook the grandstand and the, the smell of the fuel and the tires and everything. And I just thought I needed to get back to see what the fans see to help me be a better broadcaster. And Richard, it was off the charts. You, you tell me when you want to come here, I'll get you a ticket and it, and mate, you'll it'll blow you away. I have great admiration for for the people who work in these sports because like they are just they're dealing at speeds that just it's uh it's beyond me. Uh, Lee Diffie, as I mentioned earlier, is the voice of uh, NBC's lead play by play commentator for its IndyCar series. So obviously that makes him the voice of the Indy 500. Also calls other uh, moto sport events at NBC, including the WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, MotoGP, Supercross coverage, and you have obviously since seen him with his Olympic Games assignments, including track and field. When can I be the voice and of the Outback Steakhouse? It, uh, <laughs> that's when you talk to your agent, <laughs> see if you make that work. Uh, and you'll see, you'll obviously, as uh, we have a little bit of a lag until the next Olympic Games, but you'll be hearing his voice on NBC, knock on wood, hopefully in person as we get past this COVID world. Lee, thanks so much for uh, giving me some time today. You have an interesting, uh, you have an interesting job, and uh, and I wish you uh, the best of success this Sunday as you and your group uh, call the Indy 500. Thanks for uh, joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Richard, thank you, and and thanks for what you do for sport in general. Thanks, mate. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Lindsey Jones and Lee Diffie for their time and insight. Obviously, for my colleague Lindsey, you can follow her work at The Athletic and follow her uh, on various social media platforms, including her Twitter feed. If you like these kind of conversations, uh, check out the archive page for Sports Media with Richard Deitch. Previous podcast before this, a hour-plus conversation with All Elite Wrestling President as well as the uh, co-owner and chief football strategy officer for the Jacksonville Jaguars, Tony Khan, on how he consumes media via his wrestling company, where he sees the future of streaming in regards to professional wrestling, the relationship with um, Discovery Media and Warner, which is uh, merged, and how that impacts AEW. Now in a long conversation, uh, he was very, very generous with his time, and I appreciate that. Before that, Tom Berducci on Roger Angel and the art of baseball writing. Prior to that, Leslie Visser on her career just a, uh, um, received a uh, Lifetime Sports Emmy Award for uh, for her work. Larry Kalmus on calling Rich Strike's amazing Kentucky Derby win. And then obviously we have some uh, media roundtables where we discuss the events of the moment with Chad Finn, Austin Carver, and others. Again, this podcast stays around. 
if you listen. So thank you very much. If you like it, leave us a five-star review and a nice note where you can provide feedback via Apple or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, etc. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Did a lot of podcasts this week. Uh, produced a lot. So thank you very much to him. Thanks to everybody at Cage 13 for their support. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.